Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and find the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And when you find 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me invite you to the 18th verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to preach this morning from verse 18 down through verse 23. That was foolish. You are a fool. I'm a fool. You ever heard those words? They normally don't give me a warm and fuzzy feeling. You ever looked at someone and said, son, you're a fool. You ever done something your own, on your own and think, man, I, I'm pretty foolish. When Lauren and I first moved here, we rented a home for just a few months. The owner of the home had been transferred overseas to work with BMW in Germany. He left her riding lawnmower. He said, you can cut the grass or you can pay somebody to cut the grass. I do not care. I was young, right out of seminary. I did not have money to pay someone to cut the grass, and I don't mind cutting the grass. Never had no ride where I grew up. We pushed. <laughs> so I was using the riding lawnmower. Riding lawnmowers have a cutting deck. For those of you that never been on a riding lawnmower, there's a deck. It's connected usually through a series of belts. And the crankshaft of the engine turns the belt. The belt turns the blades. The cutting deck can be wide or narrow depending on the width of the lawnmower, the amount of grass you have to cut. It always the part that sticks out that says not a step, but you step on it anyway whenever you get on the lawnmower. Cutting decks have to be leveled. In other words, they can get off. And so I was cutting one day, and I noticed all the grass was whacked sideways. I went down and back, and I go, huh, and I thought the cutting deck's off. So I got off, and I attempted to try to adjust it. I don't know much. I know just enough to tear things up, never to actually finish the job. And so long story short, I thought, well, the deck is unleveled. So I began to cut more, tried to adjust, cut more, tried to adjust. Finally, I got so frustrated, I said, I'm finishing it anyway, and the yard looked terrible. It was side mohawked. The next day, I walk out to go to work, and I look. The back left wheel of the lawnmower was flat. <laughs> I cut the entire yard on a flat tire. I said as I got in my truck, you're a fool. When I was in high school, I had a job working on a land surveying company. My dad was a registered land surveyor before he became a pastor, and so he taught me to land survey. Now, I was running a job, and I was running on... The front, and I was setting a property corner. You have a property corner, your property. Your property has property corners. Most of the time, you'll see stakes above the ground. They don't last. They rot. They can be uh, hit by lawnmowers, especially those with flat tires. But the actual corner is usually an iron pin, about 18 to 24 inches, driven into the ground. And sometimes it'll have a cap on it with the name of the surveyor. Therefore, if there's a question about the location... I was setting a property corner on a steep bank one day, hot July Alabama summer, and I was driving the pin into the ground. I don't like wasps. I don't like them singular, wasp, and I don't like to have to say it plural on a stage, wasps. And a big Alabama ugly, mean red wasp landed on my shin. I had a ball-ping hammer in my hand. 
I'm a fool. <laughs> the wasp lived. I thought I was going to die. We all do things in our life where we think, what, what was I thinking? And just when we think we couldn't do things more foolish, we have children. <laughs> then they become many versions of ourselves, and we go, I thought I was a fool till I had you. <laughs> to be honest with you, in a few minutes when we recognize the seniors, we will recognize their accomplishment. And we know that life is lived better when you can gain a degree of knowledge, whatever that looks like. It may be a trade. It may be a skill. It may be a full-time homemaker, a, a, a nurturer of children. It may be someone with graduate-level and doctorate-level degrees. In fact, as you incrementally increase your knowledge, we call that a degree, a greater degree of knowledge. You get a degree. In fact, we say, where is your degree from? What is your degree in. It's a good thing to have knowledge. It's a good thing to live with wisdom. In fact, the Bible celebrates wisdom. But when it comes to understanding the human heart, there is a portion of understanding in Scripture that would actually teach us it's a good thing to be a fool. Let me show you what I mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, here it comes, you may want to underline it, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let me read that again. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, and Paul quotes Job 5, 13, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, and then he quotes Psalm 94, 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And then Paul concludes chapter 3 with the 23rd verse. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let me read verse 18 one more time. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For those of you who are guests of ours, and we'll have many today, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and we're in a current sermon series called Follow the Leader because that's exactly what the Corinthians were not doing. When Paul planted the church in Corinth, he left. When he left, the church began to flounder. He's speaking to Christians here. He's talking to people he would refer to as brothers and sisters in the faith. He is frustrated and burdened for them because the church has been divided and the divisiveness is tearing out their witness. They're losing their gospel power and their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit because they're dividing themselves into factions and they're doing so primarily along the lines of loyalty to particular human leaders. Human leaders are a gift to the church 
We need them. Praise God for small group leaders, for pastors, for elders, for deacons, for men and women who serve in various capacities. If you dropped your children off this morning in our wonderful children's wing, you have people leading your children right now, loving them and encouraging them. Right now as we speak, our student ministry team is leading our seniors in a breakfast in their honor, and many others are being led in small groups. So human leadership matters. But it is never to be the source of people choosing to practice some superiority complex, to say, well, we're under Paul, so we're better. We're under Apollos, so we're better. I'm under this man or this woman or this person. The reality is when Christians begin to divide themselves over something as beautiful yet as insignificant as human personalities when compared to the person of Christ, they're acting foolish. And yet Paul takes this concept of acting foolish and he says, you actually ought to become a fool in God's eyes so that you look like a fool in the world's eyes, which will be the source of wisdom in your own heart. This passage really breaks down into two simple truths. To be a faithful fool, you have to understand the warning of being a fool in God's eyes. That's a fool I don't want to be. I don't want to be one who God would say is a fool. What is the definition of a fool in God's eyes? Well, ultimately, it is a man or a woman who places their faith in their own reality in their own truth. You hear that language a lot. Find your truth. Trust your heart. Do what makes you complete, fulfilled, and happy. This is the message of the world. And when you buy into that as your Lord, you become a fool in God's eyes. The best way to define it, according to this passage, is that you become self-deceived. Look at verse 18. The Bible says these words in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. Now, we know as children when we're taught basics of our faith, like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt, shalt not bear false witness. We know that we would teach children you should not lie. You should tell the truth to other people. It is absolutely possible, and humans are absolutely capable of deceiving other people. But this is not talking about lying to other people. This is talking about deceiving yourself. Notice what it says. Let no one deceive himself. Now, what is the ultimate evidence of self-deception? Look what the Scripture says. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Now, when Paul uses phrases like this age, he's talking about the system of the world's power the way in which the world operates, the way in which the world determines wisdom should come. And ultimately, we see it even today, but it's not new. It was prevalent in Corinth. The world's decided source of wisdom is very human-centered. It's humanistic. The human heart becomes the center of wisdom, and the human mind and the human emotion becomes the determiner of all truth. Thus the modern day phrase, truth's irrelevant. What's your truth? 
Yet the Bible would carry a vastly different message. In fact, a biblical worldview is looking more and more different today if we trust the truth of Scripture. Now, before I share these Scripture with you, let me just say, God values humans. In fact, you can never read the Gospels and neglect the incredible love that God has for humanity. Why? Well, he made us. He created us. Secondly, he created us in his image. And even as sin wrecked our relationship with God, what was God willing to do? Did he send a book? No. Eventually, he would send his scriptures, but that's not what he sent to save us. Did he throw down lightning bolts and fire from heaven and just wipe the earth clean of all humanity? No. Even on times of severe destruction, he would preserve humanity. What did he send to save us? Well, you know it is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That verse, John three sixteen, that we teach our children is to show them the great love God has for humanity. So when I lay bare and I share before you the problem with making the human heart and the human mind the center of our life, I am not doing it and bashing God's greatest creation, which is humanity. I'm simply explaining to you the difference between viewing human beings through the eyes of God and human beings through the eyes of human beings. Some of you remember we spent quite a few months in the book of Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say about the human heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it. Those children that were baptized a few moments ago, they've expressed their faith in Christ. They spoke with their parents. Some were led to Christ by their parents. They also spoke with a pastor on our staff. Then they attended a class about baptism and salvation. Why do we take those steps? It's because we want children to have a deep sense of awareness of the decision they're making. And in the discussion of salvation, often when we are communicating to children, and quite frankly, we ought to do this when we communicate to adults, we talk about how Christ gives us a new heart. In Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Now, I know this may sound elementary, but we ought not run by it. Why do we need a new heart? Because the old one is sick. The old one is deceived. In fact, this is what Paul says in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, why does Paul condemn the wisdom of this age? He goes all the way back to the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. The story of the book of Job was recorded in the ancient of days. And look what the Bible says. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. He who catches the wise in their craftiness. And then he quotes Psalm 94. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. So before we even know our own humanistic understanding of the world, God says, I know what you're going to think because I know you fully. I created you. I understand the ramifications of sin in your life. And I'm telling you that your way of thinking without my enlightenment, without my grace, without my knowledge, without my truth, without my salvation, God would say, I'm telling you that that way is futile. When we begin to see how it fleshes out in the world, think about 2 Thessalonians. What did Paul say? The coming of the lawless one, he's talking about the Antichrist, 
future tense. The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? Because they're deceived. Why are they deceived? Look at the last phrase. Because they refused to love the truth and be saved. So to look at the truth and then to walk away from it is the ultimate rejection of God's wisdom, and that means you're a fool in God's eyes. The half-brother of Jesus, James, said it this way. James says, be you doers of the word. If you've ever been to a summer camp, you've learned, be you doers of the word. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Did you catch that? You may not have ever caught that. Notice the last phrase of verse 22. If you hear the word, but then choose not to do the word, well, you're lying to yourself. And James gives us a simple example. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Some of you like mirrors, some of you don't. Sometimes it's good to look into a mirror, and sometimes it's not. But here's what you can't do. You can't look into a mirror and forget what you see. This is why it says, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. Forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word, and preserves being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. So Paul and James is saying, when you hear the word, when you're exposed to the truth, when God hits you in between the eyes with something that is real and true and right, you have a choice. And if you walk away from that, if you choose not to live by that, if you don't allow that to form your heart, to convict you, to comfort you, to challenge you, and at times chastise you, then ultimately, in God's eyes, you become a fool. Now, how does self-deception work? Because if I were listening to this sermon, I would go, well, where does that come from? Uh, professor of Biblical Studies, Dr. Joseph Pack, I think captured it really well. Let, let me read this quote to you. Self-deception is rooted in the self-deceivers, that would be you and me if we're self-deceptive, love for oneself. In short, self-deception stems from inordinate self-love. We love ourselves improperly, when we do not derive our value from its true source, God, but from some other source, like, for example, what the world says. Now, Dr. Pat goes on to say, we deceive ourselves because we know and reject the truth. Therefore, to be free from self-deception, what must we do? We must love the truth, which means we must love God above all things. When our loves are properly ordered, did you know your loves have to be properly ordered? When our loves are properly ordered, Dr. Pack would say, God, we become our true selves free from self-deception. A few weeks ago, you and I woke up to the news um, that Naomi Judd had died. Do you remember how the story broke? This is what was released by the family. I, my mother gave me a love for country music. I enjoy country music. I especially enjoy country music from years ago. I'm not a bro country guy, sorry. I need a steel guitar. I need a broken heart. 
But I remember when the Judds first came out, my mother listened to them. The story broke, and this is what the family said. Naomi Judd has died of mental illness. You don't die of mental illness. Mental illness is real. It's serious. Naomi Judd took her life with a firearm. The family has later come out and said that happened, and they're dealing with that, and all sensitivity and grace toward them. I'm not in any way suggesting that her struggles were not real. But it is the message of our day to know one thing and to replace it with another. Everything can't be a disease. It's sin. When we don't view ourselves as God views us, we will then be susceptible to the lies of the world or more powerfully, the lies of our own emotional state. One of the greatest things is to see someone set free from having to obey their emotions. You may feel a tremendous amount of sorrow and weight and brokenness, and the Bible is full of examples of people feeling the same thing. But then you have a choice to make. Do I choose to obey my feelings, which come from a heart bent toward deception, or do I trust who God says I am, how much God loves me, his plan for my life, and the belief that no darkness I'm walking through, even if it's self-inflicted from my own sin and rebellion, is greater than the beautiful light of the grace of Jesus. And so when we begin to reorder our lives and love God the most, then we will love ourselves correctly. And when we begin to love ourselves correctly, we then have something to offer other people. It's called Christ-like love. And the scriptures say, be weary of living your life in such a way that God would say, that's foolish. You are a fool. But then that leads to something beautiful. If the first part is the warning of being seen as a fool in God's eyes, the second part of this brief passage is the blessing of being a fool in the world's eyes. This is what he means in verse 18. Look again at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. Now, God doesn't want you to become a fool and stay there. Look what he says. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. So becoming a fool in the world's eyes is a doorway to being wise in God's eyes. Let me say that again. It kind of sounds cool. It rhymes a little bit. Becoming a fool in the world's eyes is a doorway to becoming wise in God's eyes. In other words, when I am serious about ordering my life, loving God first, obeying his word, trusting his son, I'm going to look different than the world, and the world will classify me as a fool. In fact, when we begin to unpack this in the Scriptures, I'm reminded of what we saw in verse 18 of chapter 1. What does chapter 1, verse 18 teach us? I gave it to you many times during that first series. 
For the word of the cross is folly. The word folly is foolish. Is foolish to those who are perishing. So the world says, you're going to put your whole faith in a dead carpenter from Israel 2,000 years ago? That's foolish. Certainly have we not advanced beyond that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. How does the power of God come into our life? Well, first and foremost, we have to have our relationship with God reconciled. The problem between me and God is not God, it's me. Yet God who loved me, knew me, knew I would be sinful, and sent his son to die for me before I was born. And so that gracious God then offers salvation to me upon my faith and repentance. I trust him and turn from being considered wise in the world's eyes. And what do I believe when I believe in Jesus? Is he just a nice personality? Is he a wonderful rabbi? Is he a gentle teacher? Is is he a miraculous, supernatural force? There are a lot of people who would like to redefine Jesus. What does Jesus say about Jesus? What do the men and women who knew Jesus say about Jesus? It's in the book. I'm holding it. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Christ. He was... In heaven, with God, in perfect unity, in all of creation. He existed with God and in God because there is one God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet before the foundations of the world, God in his sovereign wisdom made the decision to create a world he knew would rebel, allow it to rebel for his greater glory, and send Christ in the form of Jesus, who took on flesh in the womb of of Mary, was born, lived a sinless, perfect life, never once broke God's law. Therefore, he was the first human being, both being fully God and fully man, who actually could die, go to heaven, and say, I deserve to be here, for I never failed you. And yet, while he deserved a righteous death, he died an unrighteous death in our place, for the wages of sin are death. And upon his death, his shed blood paid the price for the sins of the world. And that is sufficient for any and all who would believe. Upon his resurrection, he then defeated the curse and the power of death and showed death that you now are on borrowed time. This is why the Bible says he was the firstborn among those who've resurrected. Other people were resurrected in the scriptures. Lazarus got raised from, raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. There were many who were raised from the dead. But one thing different between those and Jesus is all those people eventually died again. Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to reenter the grave again. And, and therefore, the message of the Christian faith is that the sinless Son of God is God's offer for salvation to any who would believe. Your skin color, your sociodemographic background, your language of choice, your ability to see or hear or move have nothing to do with the grace of God in your life. The grace of God in your life comes by your faith in Christ alone, and the faith you express in Christ is shown by a life bent on following him. 
You do not do right for Christ to love you, but upon your faith in Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit which comes into your life at your salvation, you now have a new heart and a new desire to want to serve the Lord. And the more that takes root in your life, the more the world would say, look at that fool. You don't believe me? Just compare what I expressed, what I preach and teach, what other faithful men and women teach from God's Word with the headlines of our day. Let's make a little list. Only fools trust in the life, death, resurrection, and lordship of Jesus. Only fools believe every word of the Bible is true. According to our world, only fools love their enemies and want justice for the vulnerable. Only fools save their sex for marriage. Only fools believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Only a fool would try to convince me that life is precious from the moment of conception. Only fools understand that God, not you, chooses your gender. And only a fool believe they're on the earth for the glory of God and to be used so that others may know Christ. Church family, I'll be a fool. I hope you'll be a fool with me. Because when I look at all he has offered and the joy and reward and blessings attached to the truth of his word, and then you go look at the world. Go see what a humanistic, man-centered worldview does. It breeds death, depression, discouragement, divorce. It does nothing to satisfy the longing of the human soul. Why? Because it's not from the creator. It's from the created. I would much rather base my life on the one who made me than on those who, like me, were made by him. And when we begin to unpack this passage, there's one more truth I want to give you, just one more. Remember that I told you that the division in the Corinthian church was because people were fighting over whose leaders were the best? Whenever you do that, whenever you divide and say, well, we're better than you, you're basically saying, I got something you don't have. I mean, go watch preschoolers play. Everything's good till somebody shouts mine. And then it's, I mean, it's, it's over with. I mean, the brass knuckles and the switchblade knives come out, and it's a brawl because somebody said mine. If anybody's ever tried to argue with me over the inerrant sin nature we're born with, I ask them to look at their children. You never have to teach a child to say mine. You have to teach things like share and love and hug, and together, and cooperation. They come out, mine, mine, mine. Well, adults are no different. My church is better than yours. My leader's better than yours. Oh, 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 my Holy Spirit experience is better than yours. And then we begin to divide one another. Now, Paul looks at this, and he could attack it from a lot of different angles. But the way in which he closes chapter 3 is fascinating to me because he brings them all together. He brings them all together. And he says, let me, let me tell you how futile your thinking is to take a word from verses 18, 19, and 20. He says, 
You're fighting over what's yours versus what you think you have and what you think you have. It's all ours. When Paul opened the book of Ephesians, he said this in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, not you or me, us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I like the word every. You want this car? Yeah, it's a nice car. It's got every feature. Every feature? Every feature. You want some ice cream? Yeah, what flavor? Every one of them. I want them all. Every, you can't have a, yes, I, I want every one of them. We like the word every. Every means all. It encompasses everything. Now, you may think, well, this is just Paul waxing eloquently. He's just opening up with a great greeting. This is a salutation in the epistle structure. No, Paul knew exactly what he was talking about, which is exactly why he says what he says in our passage this morning, beginning in verse 21. So, he's made this argument, become a fool in the world's eyes to become wise in God's eyes. Here's why. So, let no one boast in men. Remember the men they're boasting in, Apollos, Cephas, Paul. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Paul's saying, God is not stingy. Paul has given all of you everything that you need in Christ. In Christ, we don't have to strive for it all. We have it all. Now, notice what he does with the language. Look at verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Now, that's exactly how he opened the book. Remember how he's reading in chapter 1 and he says, or we're reading and he's writing in chapter 1. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Cephas. And Paul takes that same language and he flips it and he says, God gave all these men to all of you. Now, if that wasn't enough, look what else he gave you. Look at verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. So, taking that word every, in him we have every leader. Every preacher that's ever preached God's word faithfully, I can listen to. If I can't listen to him, I can read him. Every leader that's been given to the church has been given to all the church. But we don't just have every leader, we have everything. The world, I seem to remember, he's got the whole world in his hand. Now, does this mean that God gives me material possession of everything in the world? No. But I've never had to pay for a breath of air. Any of you can have all the water you want to drink. And every opportunity afforded every other human being is afforded you within reason. I recognize there are limitations in government and in control. I recognize that people come into this world with a great deal of challenges. But the world is ours. There is no entry fee to pay when you exit the womb of your mother. And then he says, life. Every day. What did Jesus say? In him is life. And that life is the light of men. Every hope. How does Christ give us death? Well, if you were ever fighting for your king in the ancient world and he told you to go defeat 
an opposing king and defeat him unto death, what would you bring back? The dead body of the opposing king. In fact, we saw righteous men experience this. Remember when John the Baptist was executed by Herod due to the bitterness and anger of his wife, Herodias, because John the Baptist preached against the sin they were living in? And she said, I want his head on a silver platter. She was delivered his death. How does Christ deliver death to us? He killed it. Death is dead. It is nothing more than a doorway. If Easter Sunday morning did anything, it brought death's head on a silver platter to us. It's given to us. And not only is death given to us, the present, every moment is given to us in Christ. And then if you're worried about the future, as many people are, don't be worried. Don't be foolish in God's eyes. Be a fool in the world's eyes. People will say, are you not worried? Are you not worried? He's got the whole world in his hand. What happens if nuclear holocaust breaks out and you lose your life? I'm going to be with Jesus because he defeated death and he gave me hope. Well, what do you think is going to happen if gas gets to $16 a gallon? I'll buy less of it. I'll be walking. Bicycle. I I don't know. I I don't know. I know preachers preach during world wars, during Vietnam conflicts, during civil war. I know churches function during great epidemics of the past. I I know that there were great pandemics in our history. All I know is, is that God sustains his people and that the people who are not sustained physically are sustained spiritually in him. So I have every confidence that he gave me the future and the present and death and life in the world and every spiritual leader. I have it all in him. So why would I ever resent you for being blessed? Why would I ever want us to be divided over something as superficial as who's leading what, who's doing this, and who's done that? We ought to be the biggest cheerleaders for any kingdom work of God that happens in the Scriptures. And this is why. Because all that belongs to all of us. And guess who we belong to? Christ. Look how it closes. And you, verse 23 are Christ. And by the way, who's Christ? Look at the end. And Christ is God. So my God sent his only son to make me his through Christ. Just after he graduated and thinking about graduate Sunday from Wheaton College in 1949, Jim Elliott wrote these words. It's famous now. You've read the quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. October 28th, 1949. Seven years later, he and four or five other missionaries were speared to death in the Amazon jungle trying to engage an unreached people group for Jesus. Lost his life as a young husband and father His wife stayed and continued the mission work. And today there are many believers in that tribe because the world said, you fool, why would you go? And Jim Elliott said, he's no fool to give up what he cannot gain in order to gain what he can never lose. 
So as your pastor, I have to tell you, I, I don't want you to walk out here and in the English sense, go act like a fool. But when it comes to the spiritual sense, I want you to be a fool in this world's eyes so that you're wise in God's eyes. And let me tell you why. He's enough. He's enough. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now for the reception of your word in people's hearts. It is normally during this prayer that there are two people in this room. Some are thinking about leaving. They're packing up their bags, collecting Bibles and children and thinking about rendezvous and lunches. I pray you'd grab their attention for just a moment. Because the second group of people are people who are choosing to reflect and digest on your word. If I have said anything that is not driven from the meaning of this text, Lord, you just remove it from our minds right now. But for the truth that has been proclaimed, for the word of God that has been read, help us to become fools in this world's eyes. You put within every heart in this room the desire to be affirmed, accepted, loved, recognized, encouraged. There is no sin in longing for affirmation, in longing to find significance, in longing for acceptance, for love. The sin comes when we go to the world to meet those needs. The greater solution is to find our acceptance, our affirmation, our love, our truth in you and in your people. May we not only be fools for you, may our love and encouragement of one another look over the top, look foolish in the world's eyes. Lord, you are enough. And our abundance in you is more than enough to say to this world, count me a fool if you want. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to say amen and we're going to stand and we're going to be reminded in Scripture that he is enough. For those of you who are guests of ours, every Sunday, tremendous people are willing and ready in our prayer room in the concourse to pray with you. If you want to come to this altar and kneel and pray, you're welcome to do so. If you want to speak to a pastor, we're here. Take just a few moments and respond in worship and in obedience. Father, thank you that you are Jireh. You are enough. In Jesus' name.